Hello and welcome to Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your host? I'm Marianne, and I would like to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, today, whatever time it is, wherever you are living in this beautiful world of ours. So sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and discover what awaits us there. Humankind, as a rule, loves a mystery. We love things that are unexplained, unknown to us, perhaps unseen but by a few. We love to find out the stories behind these mysteries, perhaps in hope of being the one to solve them, if only for our own satisfaction and sense of curiosity and wonder. Although, because of our love of mysteries, sometimes we create one out of nothing. But is that the case with the strange and unusual animals that have been spotted worldwide? like the Yeti, the Chupacabra, is it really? Or is there something more to the story? Stories of these mythical beasts can be found worldwide. Some of them are very well known, such as the Loch Ness Monster and the Yeti, or Bigfoot, as previously mentioned. Some have only come to public attention in the past few decades, such as the Chupacabra. In the Americas, those who actively research or hunt these elusive creatures are called cryptozoologists, and the study of these beasties is called cryptozoology. Cryptozoology, as a field of study, was originally founded in the 1950s by zoologists Bernard Huvelmans and Ivan T. Sanderson. The animals themselves are referred to as cryptids by those who follow this field of study. So, cryptozoology is the study of the subject and cryptids are the creatures themselves. I personally like the definition of cryptozoology as put out by the Centre for Fortean Zoology in Australia. They give this definition, cryptozoology. The field of hidden zoology concentrating on the research of animals considered to be legendary or otherwise non-existent by mainstream biology. This includes looking for living examples of animals that are considered to be extinct such as dinosaurs and more recently extinct creatures such as the Tasmanian tiger. Animals whose existence lacks physical support but which appear in myths, legends or are reported such as Bigfoot, and the chupacabra and wild animals dramatically outside of their normal geographical ranges, such as alien big cats. While I absolutely acknowledge that these cryptids are reported worldwide, as this is a New Zealand-based podcast, with myself being based in the sunny Hawke's Bay region of our beautiful country, I felt that, for this initial episode at least, that we would focus solely on New Zealand cryptids and reports from around my home country. And we have plenty of them ourselves. Some, many New Zealanders may not have even heard of. But before we begin, I have tried my very best to be as accurate as I can with the pronunciation of Aotearoa Māori, the Māori language. I'm not a native speaker, but I am trying my best to learn it, so there is no offence intended for any mispronunciations in this episode. 
So, come walk with me into the Shadowlands and let's begin our journey together. I've always had a fascination for the unexplained, the unknown, the mysterious and a desire to know more about them. I have followed these stories on and off for my entire life. From the very first time I heard of the elusive Bigfoot as a youngster, I was hooked. There are many different types of cryptids, beasties and life forms that are said to reside on New Zealand lands and in the waters on and surrounding our beautiful country. In 1966, the Encyclopedia of New Zealand included a section headed Animals Mythical. Included in it were numerous tales of monsters, ogres, goblins, fairies, patapaalehe and weird hairy men who devoured unwary travellers and waylaid hunting parties. These also have long been part of Māori lore. With that, we'll begin with one of the most famous cryptids that belongs in New Zealand waters, whether on or off land. This, the one that most New Zealanders would have heard of or seen, carved into the beautifully ornate carvings on the local marae meeting houses, or used as the school's logo, that is, the tanifa. In New Zealand, our native people are known as Māori, in Te Ao Māori, the Māori worldview, legend and reality are very, very intertwined. And it's often difficult for New Zealand to reconcile the elements of Te Ao Tipua, the supernatural world, with today's modern society, as they continue to be very central to the beliefs of many Māori today. In fact, in only the past few decades, these beliefs have caused a few issues and some tensions between Māori customs and expectations and today's realities as we perceive them to be. For example, in 2002, Transit New Zealand, our National Roading Authority, rerouted part of State Highway 1 near Meremere when they were rebuilding it away from the domain of a tanifa named Karutahi after Ngātinaho. The local iwi or tribe expressed concerns about the dangers of building on this site. Fourteen months after construction was completed, the Waikato River flooded, swamping the area. In the same year, Northland Iwi unsuccessfully protested against Nafa Prison Nikakoe being built on an old swampland kainga, home of the Tanifa Takuere. After ignoring the Tanifa warning, the government admitted the prison was sinking into the ground and now requires major structural repairs. The Auckland Rail Tunnel project proposed by Mayor Lynn Brown is also encountering issues with a Nati Fatua Tanifa named Horatu who lives in an ancient river which now flows beneath the town hall and runs along Queen Street out to sea. The Tanifa in Māori mythology usually lived in or near the water, lakes, rivers, swamps or the sea. They hid in dens or lairs, known as rua tanifa. This could be deep pools, caves or dangerous waterways, always areas that people avoided. The tanifa can take on numerous forms. In the sea, they often appear as a whale or a quite large shark. In lakes and rivers, they may still be whale-like in size but look more like a tuatara, our native lizard, having a row of spines along the back. Other tanifa can appear as a floating log which behaves in an unusual way, as in a few experiences later on. 
Tanifa can be either male or female and not all Tanifa live in the water. Some are land-based and some are said to have the ability to shapeshift. Some of these Tanifa are seen as kaitiaki or protectors of the iwi tribes and hapu sub-tribes. These ones that were kaitiaki were respected and people who passed by the Rua Tanifa would say an appropriate karakia charm or prayer. They would also leave an offering for the tanifa, such as a green twig. However, for some iwi, tanifa are seen as dangerous predatory beings, terrifying creatures that captured people and ate them. Some were known to kidnap women and take them as wives, so the legends go. For the more traditional Māori, the tanifa, regardless of if they see it as a benevolent or malevolent being, It is a very real, living, if supernatural creature, or at the least, one that for now may simply be sleeping. The Māori had many names for their tanifa. Like the ones mentioned previously, here are a couple of more. There is the tanifa Tuhirangi, who is said to live in the Cook Strait, a channel that divides the North Island of New Zealand from the South, or Hine Kurako a female tanifa who lives under Te Rainga waterfall in Wauroa. In the 1870s, the belief by Iwi in the existence of the tanifa was very real to the Māori. And in fact, a letter was sent into a Māori-language newspaper, Te Waka Māori o Nui by one Mohiture, an elder of the Natiporo Iwi. He described the case of a girl who was said to have been killed by a tanifa at a local swimming hole, also said to be a rua tanifa, that the report in the newspaper went as follows. On 20th December 1876, four young girls had gone to bathe in a water hole at Waipapa. This spot was renowned as the leader of a tanifa named Taminamina. While three of the girls began to bathe, the fourth, Miriana, swam to the other side of the waterhole, climbed out onto the rocks and began sucking nectar from the red flowers of the sacred rata tree. Suddenly she slipped back into the water. Her friend, Rahera, tried to grab her but failed. The two other girls screamed because they saw the water whirling near where she had fallen and knew it to be the tanifa named Taminamina who had got their friend. Rahira dived to find her but could not and swam to the shallow rocks and then saw that the water was rising into waves. Days later, Mariana was found back on the rock where she had slipped, but when a group came to get her body, she had once again disappeared. An elder believed she had been taken by the tanifa as punishment for sucking the flowers of the sacred rata tree. In the case of this story, it was not because they were at the ruined Tanifa or the Tanifa's water space, but it was because the woman disrespected the place by sucking the nectar from the flowers of the rata tree, which was obviously a taboo or forbidden. In more recent times, a member of my Facebook group, Walking the Shadowlands, had her own experience with a Tanifa that was found washed up on the local seashore. Okay, so around about 94 to 96, I was living in Ōtaki, and I remember um, the family that I was living with, we got told that a tanifa had been washed up on the beach. 
So we went down for a look and there was um, a lot of local Māori there doing a karakia. And when I went down to look at this tanifa, it was, it was like a log, but more driftwood. It was long and in three pieces. And um, on the side, it was like an indent of an eye. And by then, the Māori people had put a mussel shell in there as well. But it had heaps of little, um, what is it, kaimwana, which is like seafood, like muscle-looking things. They were little and like green seaweed on it too, just little bits. It's, it sort of looked like a dragon, I guess. Yeah, and um, so, yeah, the, the local Māori people did a karakia for it. and But just looking at it, it, it was very fascinating, but it was it was sad as well because you could feel in your heart that, that it was a tanifa and that it had been in the ocean for years and years. So the three pieces, the first piece looked like a headpiece. And I remember the last bit of um, the wood looked like the tail piece as well. It, yeah, it actually looked like a tail, the, the shape of it, because it didn't look like every any other wood that had been washed up on the beach previously. Like absolutely covered in um, little shellfishes and, and the seaweed and stuff that looked like it had been there for years and years. You know, you know like when you see a whale and they have those rocks on it? Kind of like that. But then again, more fascinating again. Right. So I'm just trying to I'm just trying to um, understand how how the local iwi felt that it was a tanifa. Like, what gave them the idea that it was a tanifa? Was it more about the feeling or more about how it looked? I I I think it was all of that because it did look like it, and like even myself walking up to look at it, you could just feel straight away that that's what it was. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah, like I said, it did not look like any other piece of wood that had been washed up. How long do you think it would have been in length? Oh, definitely longer than what I am. Maybe twice my height. But then again, because it had broken off into three pieces, um, when, when it was together, it it still wasn't far apart from one another. Um, and then when I stood beside it, it came up to, like, the headpiece was like, up to my hips sort of thing. So what happened What happened to the tanifa after the karakias? Did they um, bury it or...? From what I know, they, they pretty much just left it there. And, yeah, I actually can't remember, to be honest. But no, I don't think they buried it because I. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, I I think there was other gifts around around it as well. Like a um, couple of kitty uh, bags, like woven out of flax, sort of thing. Yeah. One day a tanifa went swimming in the Moana. He whispered in my taringa Oh, won't you come with me? 
There is a lot to see underneath the deep blue sea. But I said, no, 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 I've got to go, go, go. But I'm sure we'll still be friends. My mother is waiting for me underneath the kofa tree. Tanifa ha erera. Oh, Tanifa ha erera. There is a school of thought amongst some cryptozoologists that the sea-based tanifa might in fact be a species of mosasaur, a creature that officially died out in the Cretaceous period about 65 million years ago. A New Zealand paleontologist named Alan Marks has a theory that a population of mosasaurs still exists, albeit a very small population, and that they live in the depths of the Pacific Ocean, although are occasionally in areas such as the Atlantic and Indian Oceans where they are sometimes spotted. He postulates that the ridiculous amount of little-known New Zealand sightings may mean that New Zealand is actually a breeding ground for mosasaurs, but, of course, this is all very speculative. Here are some alleged sightings of Tanifa reported around New Zealand waters over the centuries, beginning in 1889 with one Mr. Alexander Lindsay Kerr. Mr. Kerr, the chief officer of the Union Steamship Company ship, the Rotomahana, was shocked to witness, quote, a huge conga eel, with the exception that it had two fins about 10 feet or 3 metres long, rise out of the ocean almost 30 feet 9 metres off the Portland Light between Gisborne and Napier. End quote. He later described how, when he saw pictures of eels in books later, he thought the serpent he had seen had a far more crocodile shaped head. 1891. Alfred Ford Matthews, surveyor, writes to the Herald newspaper that while on board the Manapuri from Auckland to Gisborne on Friday the 24th of July, he and several others distinctly saw a sea serpent resembling the one seen from the Rotomahana off Portland Island. The serpent when seen from the Manapuri was a few miles north of East Cape, so evidently it has been travelling south. The time was between 8 and 9 in the morning, and the monster was also seen by the ship's officer in charge. It was watched for over 10 minutes and was travelling slowly, raising itself 20 or 30 feet, 6 to 10 metres, out of the water every 2 minutes. It would, from time to time, lift its head and part of its body to a great height perpendicularly, and, when in that position, turn its body round in a most peculiar manner, displaying a black back and white belly with two arm-like appendages of great length. It would then suddenly drop back into the water, scattering it in all directions. In 1926, one Theo Hazelwood told of the time he was on a fishing boat near the entrance to Wellington Harbour when a 16-year-old boy shouted out to him from the back of the boat. He rushed over and saw a long, thin neck drifting on the water surface, topped with a small head and a mouthful of vicious-looking fangs. It circled the boat five times before swimming away. 
1939, a Christchurch couple in Totoranui said they stumbled across a large rotting animal, which they later described as resembling the Wiyo Maru corpse. In the early 1950s, my own mum and a group of her friends, all in their early 20s, had a very brief encounter themselves. This was her story. She told me that they were crossing one of the many bridges that spanned the mighty Waikato River, which cuts the city of Kirikiriroa, otherwise known as Hamilton, into two banks. One of the group spotted a large log in the river. Now, this by itself is not actually unusual to see, especially after heavy storms and the like. What was unusual with this log, as all the members of the group observed, was that it was floating against the strong current of the river, which normally flows at a pretty decent rate of knots. I was on a boat on a dinner cruise on the river when I lived in Hamilton at one time, and the captain told me that the river flowed at something like 20 knots per hour front, just from memory, which obviously could be inaccurate. Regardless, it's a pretty swift flowing river. So anyway, they watched this log for a minute going against the current upriver. When one of the group, a Maori man, suddenly said, that's no log, it's a tanifa, and they all scattered, ran off the bridge and returned to their homes, shaken at having witnessed this for themselves. Of course, growing up in Kirikiriroa, they had always heard of the stories of the many tanifa that inhabited the bends of the mighty Waikato River, but, as with most people, they simply thought they were legends and myths until that night, until her death. Mum never denied what they had experienced that evening. Kaha'o'e Kikarapiro, in 1971, the crew of the Kampira Maru saw a bug-eyed monster about 30 kilometers off Littleton. It was said to resemble a large crocodile, 
though they saw it had fins rather than legs when it leaped under the water. In 1972, in Temuka, three women, white-baiting at the mouth of the Orare River, watched a huge monster wallowing in the breakers barely 30 metres away. They described it as a small, dark, grey, lizard-like creature, although it was around 5 metres long. It had a huge, gaping mouth full of small, sharp teeth. In 1983, an anonymous woman said that she had witnessed a gigantic mosasaur-like sea creature circling the small raft she was in off, far off the coast of Picton. She said the animal she saw was almost seven metres in length and that its snout occasionally emerged from the water, showing some very grisly-looking teeth. In 1990, two young women sunbathing by a lagoon near Topor were amazed to see a giant lizard swimming around in the shallows. It emerged its upper body at one point and attempted to catch a bird in its jaws but was unsuccessful. It then submerged again and swam into the depths. The girls said it was the most incredible experience they had ever had. In 1993, a large sea monster was spotted by Earl Rigney of Canterbury via telescope. He claimed he saw what he thought was a whale in the distance. So he looked through his telescope at the animal and was surprised to see that it was in fact a large crocodile breaching on the surface of the water. He said it was roughly 30 feet or 9 metres long. In 2001, a group of teenagers boogie boarding in Paikakariki were terrified when an enormous monster exploded out of the water in front of them. All five perfectly described a mosasaur when they reported their tale. In 2006, Ivan Levy was left shocked and boatless after a dramatic encounter with a pair of aggressive animals, which rammed into and attacked his boat when he was out enjoying the sun on the deck. He claimed that they were like lizards with fins and were about six metres long, though he did say they may have been slightly shorter or longer. After over an hour of attacking the boat, the pair of creatures swam away. Ivan Levy returned to shore with a wrecked boat. Some said he had deliberately damaged the boat for insurance money, but unfortunately for him, the boat was not insured and he gained very little other than a few local headlines for his story. In 2007, a mother and infant daughter saw a sea monster the size of a small whale splashing in the shallows. So these are just some of the reported sightings over the years in New Zealand. Many more, of course, go unreported except to perhaps friends or close family for fear of ridicule. And who can blame them? Here are two more recent experiences from the Whanganui River. The first is anonymous. The second is from Ria, a member of my Walking the Shadowlands Facebook group. I was 21 and living in Whanganui and had been invited to go on a trip up the river on a boat for a friend's hen celebration on a Saturday afternoon evening. I had mahi work to finish in the studio, so I didn't drink at all throughout the day and evening. My best friend was also on board. We cruised up the river at about three in the afternoon and spent a few quiet hours there. It was a beautiful trip being on the river and... Seeing the surrounding land from water is a different and exciting experience of a place. When it was time to make the return journey home, my friend and I decided to stay on deck rather than in the cabin to experience seeing the town at night from the river. 
The river was completely different in the darkness. It felt much wider and wilder, more itself, and the sounds of the water and its inhabitants were much sharper and louder due to our sense of sight being limited by the low light. We watched and listened, soaking in the experience and enjoying the solemnity and the depth of the great body of water. I felt a profound sense of reverence and wonder at being in that place, being able to feel its majesty, age and wisdom filled me with awe. My friend and I heard a different sound, a splash that was louder than anything we'd heard all day. So we turned concurrently to look overboard, toward the opposite shore, where Puteki Faranui is sighted. In the pitch black inky water, we both saw a form moving. It was quiet and otherworldly despite its initial splash and its apparent size. We did not turn in time to see its head, only its body, which looked like a huge tuna, eel, about 60 centimetres in diameter, perhaps bigger. It was about four or five metres away from the boat. Its body was large, considering we may not have seen the broadest part of it. Its surface was smooth like a tuna or dolphin, and I had heard stories that dolphins sometimes swam up the river a little and were considered rahui, but the body of this creature was very long. It moved in a humped curve like an upside-down U, as if it had come up for air and just dove back into the water. I would estimate that the length of the body would be four metres, perhaps longer if outstretched. It felt like it went on forever as we watched. My friend and I looked at each other amazed and confounded. I think we were more shocked that we were both witnessing such an important and extraordinary thing than afraid. It is not every day that you feel transported through time, history and have your deepest beliefs confirmed by simply seeing something. I am truly grateful to have had the privilege of beholding that kanifa. They do not have to grace us with their presence. The world is not what you think it is. Everything is possible. Kia ora, my name is Rhea um, and this is my story about the one of the Wanganui Tanifa. So my stepmother grew up in Wanganui, her family is from there, and so I spent a lot of my school holidays there growing up with her uh, with her whanau, and they live in a place called, uh, I guess the area is Papa'iti, and it's that part of the river, so that's sort of like you're heading out of Wanganui, it's down towards that end of the river. And when we, was, when we were kids, I took my much younger than me cousins down to have a look at the river, when no adults were watching what we were up to. So I actually walked them up a country road and then across the main road and then down some, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble for this, and then down a bank because I wanted to go and look at the river. Uh, and there was a, I think, a, a, one of the holiday homes or the holiday parks that were down that end. So it was um, reasonably flat once we got down to the river, but and there were kayaks and stuff tethered up not too far away. And there was, I think, I think, a little sort of, mm, dock or like an awning that you can push your boats off from anyhow so we were crouched on the side of the riverbank um <laughs> I think we were skimming stones to be honest and it was I was having a grand old time and then I noticed this uh log like a tree branch reasonably thick though and it was not too far away from us probably shit <laughs> 
six meters at the most. It was pretty close, and the river's pretty deep down that end, which is why it's built for, which is why there's so much kayaking. And I saw it, um, saw it sitting out there, and so we were all, because we're children, making notes of the log that wasn't, that was just sort of randomly sitting in the middle of the water. Um, and I'd actually looked away when it had started to move upstream, but one of the little ones spotted it and pointed it out. And I remember turning my head and it was just such a bizarre kind of moment <laughs> to be in because I was literally watching this thing uh, cutting through a current. So the current was coming down the river, the log was moving up the river, and there was only part of the front of it that was still sort of visible as it, as it progressed, it slowly sort of started sinking. Um, but what I remember really clearly wasn't so much the log itself, it was the way that the water was moving around it. So it left like trails on either sides of it. So I don't know if it's because it's it was very wide under the water or if under the surface it was um, dragging. I don't know because things don't look like that when they move through water. You get that white kind of uh, dusting on top of the water when things cut through. This didn't look like this. This was ripples coming off something that was much larger I guess in hindsight when I look back and think oh yeah something was really big under that but for we watched it for a while and then it came up sort of up towards a, a bank that stuck out a bit and it went wide around that and it disappeared and we all just kind of sat there watching it and I remember this rising feeling like in the moment it was kind of bizarre but the second it wasn't in sight anymore it was this rising feeling of like hot and kind of vomit because and I believe that is fair <laughs> um, as I fully freaked out uh, I think I was about nine which means that the ones with me were six five six maybe four four five and six they're only little um I panicked dragged us up the bank dragged us back up to the road and when we got up onto the main road was when all our parents were coming down the road trying to find out where we'd gone and I got in so much trouble um not that I cared at the time because we were alive and we survived whatever that was so I was just kind of gibbering <laughs> about what we'd what we'd seen and it was good because I think every the kids that were with me backed me up but no adult that was there told me that it was rubbish they just kind of went oh okay you know you're not supposed to go to the river by yourself and it was more of the safety side of it so I never felt bad for explaining it because they didn't immediately tell me that I'm full of shit silly but it's a monumental thing I think when you're a kid when you believed I remember when we later on I think probably a couple of days later um telling retelling my dad because <laughs> it was my favorite story and he just kind of was like, yep, that's generally how they do that. So, what are these Tanefa we have heard all about in this episode? Are the sea-based ones Mosasaurs, as has been postulated previously? Is this indeed possible? But what about the land-based Tanefa, some that dwell in water, some on land? There are schools of thought that some of these water-based ones could be extremely large tuna, as the previous encounter might suggest. And certainly New Zealand does have the world's largest freshwater eel living in our lakes and streams. The New Zealand longfin eel is very impressive, described by those who have seen them as logs that moved. There have been confirmed sightings of specimens up to 2 metres in length and weighing up to 40 kilograms. In fact, scientists believe that our endemic longfins are quite possibly the largest eels in the world. But their huge size is not the only thing which makes longfin eels very disconcerting. 
There's this serpent-like appearance, an elongated body which slides through the grass when migrating from one waterway to another as easily as it slithers through streams. Equally unappealing is their skin, which, although has scales, is covered with a, a thick layer of slippery slime. So, could this tuna account for some of the Tanifa sightings? Could it? In 1973, a diver fixing a gate at the Arapuni power station on the Waikato River had two ribs broken when he was charged by a long fin tuna. An even more unfortunate tale involves the Southland farmhand who decided to go for a skinny dip and uh, was subsequently hospitalised after a tuna latched onto a very sensitive area. So eels have been known to attack the odd, unfortunate human, but mostly because of human error, such as having fish blood on their body when in the water or similar. As mentioned previously, not all Tanifa live in the water. The land-drilling Tanifa were called Nararahuro, or less commonly as Kumi. Some of these have been described as looking like a giant tuatara with a spiky tail. Some have even described them as dragons. Certainly there were narara lizards in New Zealand which were larger than the tuatara. In 1874, J.W. Stack recorded the testimony of certain prominent Māoris who claimed not only to have seen but also to have handled and eaten them. That version of the narara lived in Manuka Scrub and varied in size from 2 to 3 feet in length, and from 10 to 20 inches in girth. There was also a smaller narara, about 18 inches long, found in streams. The Māoris attributed the disappearance of the large narara to scrub fires, and the attacks of cats, and added stack, perhaps a Norwegian rat. So, there is a precedent for this at a smaller size, but who's to say that is the only sizes they came in? There is a remarkable story of a tanifa the locals called the Kaifatahi dragon. In the old days, none of their ancestors would go near. Yet, when the Waimarino block was being surveyed and the Pākehā laughed at them for being frightened, some Māori decided to risk it for the big money being offered. The men worked all the first morning, cutting lines through the scrub in Ropo, and had almost forgotten their fear when Warahi happened to get a glimpse of the lake. Suddenly, there was the Tanifa, rushing towards him on the surface of the water with the speed of a galloping horse. Warahi cried out in alarm. One glance, and all the men went in different directions, fleeing for their lives through the flax and swamp. The European was worst off, as he had his heavy instruments, which he did not wish to lose. But in trying to save them, he slipped, and a slasher badly cut his leg. He lay quiet for a time, and as he found he had eluded the Tanifa, he tied up his wound with strips of his shirt and then crawled back to camp, which he reached the same night. Peter and Picky also reached the camp later on that night, but they were covered with cuts and scratches and their clothes were practically torn off them. For three days, no one would venture out of the camp, not even the Pākehā, but on the fourth morning, the Māori men went out to search for their companion, whom they eventually found unable to walk and quite dazed. Also, there were marks of the scratches of the Tanifa all over his body. He must have been caught and left for dead, but he himself could never remember what had taken place. Each of the Māori affirmed that Kafotahi chased them, 
and they certainly believed it, that the Ovalite chain and slashes remain at the lakeside to this day. So, that's the story of the Kai Fotahi dragon, as told by Makar. Thank you, Makar. A very interesting tale, to be sure. Another theory that has been put forward again as recently as 2017 is that some of these water sightings could in fact be crocodiles that have migrated across the Tasman from Australia and adapted to New Zealand waters. Certainly, I have some newspaper clips on the podcast website from the 1800s where even then some people who had sightings swore that they were crocodiles that they saw. In March 2017, an article appeared in an online magazine called Investigate Daily where it made the headline, Tanifa Mystery Solved. Saltwater crocodiles visit New Zealand? The article, which is linked on our website, makes an interesting case that perhaps some of these sightings could in fact be attributed to such a man-eating beast. Also, New Zealand is never far from the ocean on all coasts of our islands, so it is entirely possible that at least one of the Tanifa could be a bull shark, perhaps? Bull sharks have been known to swim inland for, for very, very long distances. They've been found 2,500 miles, 4,000 kilometres inland up the Amazon River and actually live in Lake Lake Nicaragua in Central America. They have travelled up the Mississippi as far as Illinois and are regularly spotted in the Ganges, also close to home in many of Australia's waterways. So they can easily tolerate salt, brackish and fresh water and shallow waters aren't too much of an issue for them either. So, perhaps... At least one of the stories reported in the 1800s of a young Maori girl who was found with the flesh stripped completely from one of her arms could perhaps be a bull shark. The simple fact of the matter is that we may never know unless and until one of these cryptids are caught or photographed. We may never know. And even if they were photographed, there would be those who would doubt the veracity of what they'd be seeing anyway. So, for now, these Tanifa will remain well and truly living in the Shadowlands, in the realm between myth and reality. That's where we'll end this episode of our podcast. It's been a very interesting journey and a learning experience for me in the researching of this subject, which actually has taken on a life of its own and was originally only going to be a one-off episode. Be sure and join us next week as we dwell further into the shadowlands of New Zealand cryptids. Sadly, I can't give credit to tonight's musicians, I really wish I could, but I got the names from the internet archives for music that was for New Zealand music that was non-copyrighted, and there were no names attached to the singers of the songs, particularly to the woman who chanted that most beautiful chant about the Waikato River, called Waikato Te Awa, and children's song One Day a Tanifa, written in 1974 by Pia Tarehe. 
Tui Yates. Pia Tarehe was a well-known te arawa rotorua teacher and entertainer, commonly known as Auntie B. So if any of you know who they were, then please let me know so I can give them appropriate credit. I really would like to do that, and it's only the right thing to do. If you enjoyed these episodes, then please leave a positive rating and a written review on iTunes. Who knows? You may hear your review read out at the end of an episode, so get writing. And of course, so you don't miss out on our next episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. And as always, I would love to hear your experiences or your thoughts. You can email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com. Please consider supporting this show on patreon.com. You can check out the link on our website, check our Facebook page, like and follow it for hints on our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, today, wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours, we'll see you this time next week. Thanks for listening. 